All right. Hello, hello. You're listening to Paradigm Shift, a podcast about people building the future and pivotal moments in their journey. I'm Ashish, and I'm joined by my co-host, Zain. And today, we're thrilled to speak with Vrinda Gupta, who is the CEO of Sequin. Vrinda, thanks so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm excited to be here. So Zane and I have been interviewing a bunch of founders in fintech, and a theme that keeps recurring is the verticalization of finance. And the gist of it is that 10 years ago, it was really expensive and arduous to start a fintech company. To get a bank license and to get a product in consumers' hands, you needed like $10 million and years of engineering and regulatory work. Nowadays, a lot of these services are exposed through APIs, like with Lithic and Stripe and so on. And so it's much easier to get to market. And then on the consumer side, the expectations have changed and consumers are now expecting tools that are not one size fits all, but rather things that solve their precise problems. And we're really excited to have you on because the company you run matches this theme perfectly. And so maybe before we get started and we'd love to get into your background, it would be great if you can just give a quick summary of Sequin, the problem you're trying to solve, some context around the stage of the business, and what got you excited about it. Yeah, for sure. Well, maybe it helps to start with a bit of background. So I started off my career working at Visa, and I was there for almost six years. I was working on the U.S. consumer products team, and we managed all of the U.S. Visa credit card platforms. So essentially what we did was manage the Visa Traditional, Visa Signature, and Visa Infinite platforms. And you know, it was my first job out of college. I was working on this team and had this really exciting opportunity to be the PM working on new consumer credit products, especially ones for kind of affluent millennials. And um, you know, that Amex Platinum had had a lot of success. And so from the Visa standpoint, there was a lot of interest in, you know, how do we actually create a premium product, but really geared towards this kind of new segment of affluent millennial, really urban millennial that, you know, might not yet qualify for, want to pay for your, you know, ultra premium centurion type of card, but still kind of give that same exclusivity, benefits, et cetera. And so, you know, we're working on the Chase Sapphire Reserve. I can give a bit more, you know, background on that later as a fun project. And um, I applied for the card when I was at work and I got rejected. And, you know, it was this moment where, funny enough, it was the first time I thought about credit. And I just didn't realize that I had been putting all, this, all of my spend on debit. I'd been using my dad's credit card as an authorized user, but that wasn't building my credit history. And so when I went to apply for this card, even though I had a high income and I'd been responsible, that isn't really taken into account in credit scoring. And so I got rejected almost too late, right? The challenge with credit is that you need credit to get credit. And then when you go to seek it, if you don't have it, it's too late. And so after I got rejected, I looked at Visa data and I saw that 70% of women's spend was like mine. And we were using debit, we're using credit cards and other people's names, and that wasn't building our credit. And so when we went to actually apply for credit products, we're getting rejected more often, we're getting lower credit lines, we're getting higher interest rates, and the products themselves too were really 
created for this prototypical male traveler, which is why you have so many kind of travel benefits on these products. But as I looked at the way that I personally was spending, it was pretty fundamentally different. And I was looking around at my friends and I'm saying, you know, we're spending a lot on retail, a lot on charity, a lot in these kind of up and coming D2C brands. And I didn't feel like those rewards were really reflected on credit products. And then finally, I learned that women could be rejected from a credit card without a male co-signer until 1974, which is really not that long ago. And so this is truly a, a system and an industry that was built to center men. And you know the downstream impacts of that today are that women are, are being left out of the system, are, are not really being served by the system. And I felt like there was a huge opportunity to do something that was meaningful, which is you know, get women the credit that we deserve and, you know, launch our first product. So that's kind of the introduction of the story and happy to go more into, you know, the product and et cetera as needed. Yeah, I, I think that's amazing. I'm really excited about what you're doing because a lot of the fintech success stories I've observed have served sort of like an underserved or an unmet need. So I think Brex is an example where startups were sort of like ignored by like big fintech players for a long time. Lithic is another one with their card issuing. And I think you kind of fit that same profile where you're solving problems for like women, which is like 50% of the population and somehow has been underserved for decades. So I think that's really cool. So one question about that, we'd love to get a little bit of insight on how underwriting works. Like what are banks looking at when they underwrite? Because presumably you would have qualified for certain credit card products, but you didn't for this like premium product. So so what's going on there? And like, why is it that, how does this bias sort of show up in the underwriting? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, one of the key factors that goes into FICO scoring is credit utilization, right? That's about 30, 35% of your credit score. And essentially what we see happening with women is because we're getting lower credit lines, and that's due to you know gender wage gap, it's due to the fact that we aren't building credit as effectively, we get these lower credit lines, and then we are either spending the same or more. And that means that our credit utilization is higher, and it makes our risk profile look worse than it actually is. And so essentially, you know, when we look at the different factors, yes, repayment history, but also credit utilization is something that is disproportionately biasing against women. And so in our product, we actually don't report credit utilization because for women, it actually hurts more than it helps. But, you know, additionally, having credit in your own name, right, having length of credit is a factor that goes in. So if you are an authorized user that does show up, but repayment history is the kind of biggest factor and you want to be able to show that you not as a secondary or authorized user but as a primary user are actually you know paying back and being shown in the eyes of the system and so what we're seeing with women also is that we're more likely to be authorized users on a parent or a partner's card and so you might be credit visible but you're really not showing the two biggest factors which are repayment and the credit utilization piece and so you know with us and our products it's really important to have a card product in your own name, building your credit the entire time and, you know, not even reporting credit utilization again. Right. So that's yeah, that makes sense. So one, one of the challenges with fintech is it's kind of like hard to reach customers at the right moment, right? Because people are not thinking about their credit and, you know, you might sort of like, you know, get denied on a card or it's sometimes it's usually too late by the time you figure out you have a problem. How have you thought about your, your go-to-market and your building awareness and, and building interest? 
what are some challenges you had to sort of like solve along the way? Yeah, I mean, evangelizing the problem is probably the most important piece of this, right? Some of the downstream impacts of a system that is really not designed to center women is that there are these societal issues around educating women around finances. And so some of the stats that I saw as I, were, I was doing research was young women, little girls are less likely to have a lesson on credit as compared to little boys by the time they graduate high school. Women are talking about finances less to one another. You know, parents are talking to their sons differently and they're talking to their daughters differently about credit. And so to your point, when it comes time to actually seek credit, it's usually too late. And so where we're looking to start is with young professional women who are about to come into financial freedom, right? And how do you actually make credit top of mind? Let's say you're getting your first paycheck or you're about to graduate, you've just started a job. How do you actually make credit a part of that? And one of the big kind of initiatives that we have with our initial population is thinking about finances and credit as self-care, right? And, you know, the women's conversation, the women's health conversation has evolved over time from physical health to now, you know, mental health, emotional health, and finances are so center in, you know, feeling healthy and feeling confident and empowered. And so, you know, partnering with companies that are the more traditional versions of self-care and making sure that credit is a part of that conversation is something that's really important. You mentioned you started your career at Visa. I'd love to hear more about that because you were able to get the insider's perspective. In particular, what goes into launching a card? I know you worked on Chase Sapphire. Would you mind walking us through, like, how does that happen? Like, how do you go from conceptualization to research to design to actually getting it in the hands of consumers and then scaling it up? And it'd be great to also hear any thoughts on how banks think about customer segments, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's very interesting going back to the verticalization finances conversation, right? Because launching fintech products as a startup is very different from launching, you know, credit cards or, or other card products when you're inside an established system. So for example, you know, I was working at Visa, we're the card network, and Visa had these partnerships with issuing banks who have the entire system kind of stitched together, right? So Chase has the infrastructure to launch multiple credit products pretty quickly. I put that in quotes because, you know, quickly at a big bank is, is you know, a bit different timeline-wise. You know, I would say that the cycles are anywhere from two to six years. And so in terms of the actual challenge of it, the challenge isn't actually, okay, let's get this infrastructure stood up. It's finding a large enough market and making sure that your product is differentiated to actually cater to that market. So in the case of the Chase Sapphire Reserve, understanding the segment was really important, right? It's this young professional millennial who is kind of new to the on-demand economy, right? Like Uber, et cetera, was really coming up at that time. And so thinking about what exactly does this segment value? And something that was really interesting as my team and I were launching uh, products on Visa Infinite, which is the more premium tier, was thinking through, you know, what are rewards and what is interesting? And so if you actually look at lower tier products, you look at traditional products, Visa signature products, the pure cash back rewards requirement is higher than it is for the most premium product. But for the most premium products, you actually have rules around experiential benefits and you need to offer certain types of experiential benefits. So for the most premium product, 
Chase Sapphire Reserve, for example, there's airline lounge access on that, right? Because that is something that's going to elevate your experience. And the actual value that you get out of that product comes mostly from the experiences and not necessarily the pure cash back that you're getting. Doing research, what are those benefits? How's it going to appeal? But also being really thoughtful about the status symbol pieces of it, right? This heavy metal card in the visa rules, it's written in how heavy it needs to be at least this weight, you know, thinking through the colors of it, thinking through, you know, it's a travel card, right? So even though it's metal, you don't want it to go off in the metal detector as you're traveling, right? There are all of those details coupled with, you know, I think a piece that Chase did a really good job on in the marketing was kind of hyping it up, leading up to it, right? And leaking it to the plain sky. And, you know, it was kind of the first time where there was a, a credit card product that was truly kind of an unboxing, like viral experience, right? People are like on YouTube and showing their card, et cetera. So I think, there was just so many elements of that. I think the timing was really right, but really capturing this aspirational feel for this market, you know, is really what hit the nail on the head with that product and was really inspirational for me as I started thinking about building out Sequin as truly a consumer product, right? Because traditionally where big banks are innovating to answer your question, Zane, is, is really kind of broad-based products, right? You want to be able to appeal to a lot of people. And ideally that segment is one that is going to be spending a lot on the cards because they're going to make your, your share and interchange there. But making sure that you're actually able to differentiate beyond just rewards, right? So beyond just cash back, that's becoming table stakes. But what can you do in experiences? How do you make this more personalized? The card look, tone, and feel. You know, for us with Sequin, education and community is a really big differentiator and is something that we see that women are lacking today and are really looking for. So we view our card's responsibility as not just this credit builder that does it for you, but actually teaches you how does the system work? What do you need to know to set yourself up for success? and how do you turn this game from a single player game to a multiplayer game? Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. It makes me wonder, like, what are some of the advantages a startup has, right, over a, an incumbent when going after like a focused segment? So you mentioned community. Like, how do you think about building that? And what are some other advantages like that something someone like you has over like some of these more horizontal products? Yeah, I mean, gosh, where, where do you start, right? That's the fun piece about being in a fintech. I think, you know, for me, coming from the product side, something that's really interesting is being able to reimagine the way that traditional products work. So our sequin card is a debit card that builds credit. And traditionally, the way that these products are viewed are they're very much in boxes, right? It's like you have a debit card, you have a credit card, there's a secured card. But you can't really innovate across those lines for multiple reasons. Those are technological limitations or regulatory limitations, you know, just the way things have been done limitations, right? And so truly being able to reimagine fundamentally how these products work is something that, you know, a fintech has an advantage of because you're building that from the ground up. So that's one piece that to me as a product person is very exciting. But I think just from a very you know, human perspective and understanding the needs of these populations, the way that traditionally card products are built is very kind of traditional research methodologies, right? You do a nationwide survey, you maybe fly a few places, talk to a few people, but as a startup, and especially one that's focused on a specific market, you can get really deep with your customers, right? And understand, okay, how is the existing system not serving you? Coupled with, how would you love 
to act? Who do you want to be? How does a product like this help you level up your life? And what does that mean to you, especially in kind of a, a time where the definition of what it means to be aspirational is changing a little bit? And so you can get really deep with your cardholders. I think um, when I was at Visa, maybe I spoke with a handful and now we speak to our customers, you know, multiple times a day and can really understand what is moving the needle for them. So I would say, you know, those are two of the most interesting pieces. The third that is also fun as kind of as a startup is when you think about benefits that you can add onto your card at kind of a Visa type of scale or at, you know, a large issuing bank scale, you aren't really going to be taking a risk with smaller players and up and coming players, right? Because they need to be able to off the bat service multiple millions of cardholders. And you don't know if that player is going to be around in two or three years. And so it kind of limits the types of players that you can be partnering with. And that's why you see some of these more legacy players on your card, your traditional card products. But as a fintech, you can take those risks, right? You know, one of the pieces that is super exciting about our product is that we're partnering with early stage D2C women-founded companies and being able to offer benefits with them and experiences with the founders, because that's something that we can do, right? We're as nimble as they are. And so we're able to, you know, have much more interesting and more frequently changing benefits as opposed to these kind of long contracts that you're forced to sign when you're, again, needing to service people at scale immediately. What are some surprising things you've heard from your users that you would not have sort of expected? I mean, so, you know, the first piece that I heard that I thought was so fascinating was the appetite for knowledge to understand how these products work. I think I have this hypothesis that, okay, we're going to build you a great product. It's going to build your credit effectively. You're going to have much more personalized, more interesting rewards. And that was just going to be enough. But the appetite for education and understanding the why behind things was something that was very interesting, especially talking to women, because this is a new type of product. And because traditionally, you know, we're not really engaging with financial products as closely, there's this huge appetite for knowledge. And that's something that was pleasantly very surprising. On the other side, that's kind of a funny anecdote. I would hear so many women just say, my credit cards are ugly. All of the black and blue cards, right? They all look the same. And so if you think about again, a, a credit card as a consumer product, you want it to be aligned with you. And so, you know, we did a lot of co-creation. We do that, you know, all the time on our product. And um, one of the pieces that came out was finding a card color, right? What color should our card be? And, you know, we didn't want to necessarily do it as pink, but what we came together with as a group was coral because that was a color that looked good on all skin tones and was very different from kind of like the black and blue cards. So that's kind of, you know, on both extremes, ton of appetite for knowledge and then, you know, everything from the look, tone and feel of the card as well. Yeah, that's awesome. I love how your card looks uh, on, on the website. Definitely recommend folks to check it out. So it sounds like education and community are, are huge things that come up for you. How do you think about building those as a startup? It's kind of a hard thing to do, right? Yeah, it's, it is the most challenging piece, but the most exciting piece, right? But those things usually go hand in hand. You know, when I think about community around financial products, especially card products, as I mentioned, traditionally, they're solo games, right? You don't really know. Sometimes people don't even know their own credit limits, let alone, you know, their partner or their friend's credit limits. And so... 
you know, creating a really safe space to not only educate, but be able to talk openly as well as something that the women in, in sequin have loved. And so we do different types of events. We do sequin credit power hours, which is basically, you know, expert created knowledge that we put together around a variety of topics. Some of them are pretty technical, right? How exactly does a credit card work? What is interchange? How does that affect businesses? How are rewards funded? That's kind of one side of things to, you know, how do you manage credit when you're in a couple to how do you think about credit beyond cards? How do you set yourself up for success? So we'll do these events and the women will come together and then kind of talk about it after and breakout rooms, et cetera. It's all you know virtual right now, but we hope to do them in person. We have a very active Slack community where women will you know, talk about the fact that they're about to call their bank and ask for a credit line increase, wish me luck. And everyone's kind of sending shamrocks, right? And so as we're at this early stage, it's been fun to see those pieces come out that women want to be talking about credit, want to be talking about finances, supporting each other and then being able to productize some of those pieces and put that into our actual solution, right? So you can imagine, you know, a woman shopping somewhere and saying, hey, I want to support this business. Just want to let you all know this is where I shopped, right? And that's a really cool way to bring awareness to, you know, values and mission-driven businesses as well, which is, you know, something we're building out in the future. So that's kind of on the education and community piece, but also, you know, thinking about, finances being very closely aligned with values, right? Every dollar that you spend says more about, you know, your values than anything you might, might say. And so being able to connect around that as well, whether it's the benefits that we offer on our card to actually letting women, you know, say, we would love to see this benefit on our product and really have it feel community created and community owned is something that is very exciting and um, is something that is fundamentally different from anything, you know, I could have done when I was building in a more kind of traditional infrastructure. It's really rare that a product can really capture that much excitement amongst users. And it's most impressive when it happens for businesses that aren't inherently viral, right? Like when you see WhatsApp or Instagram or Facebook go viral, like, got it, that makes sense. You kind of need it. It's a part of the workflow. But when you see I work at DuckDuckGo and word of mouth is a big driver for us or with Sequin or other products that you don't actually, it doesn't have an inherent viral loop built in. I think that's really impressive. It's also really advantageous for the business because that compounds over time and decreases your, your cost to acquire customers. And it builds this insane, amazing moat for the business. So one, that's really impressive and makes sense that you would lean into that. You mentioned kind of using that as a feedback loop to develop, to decide what goes into the product. What's the product vision? What's the end state of this product after you've been operating for many years and you have a thousand employees? Like, is it a bundle? Is it is it leaning into rewards? We'd love to hear uh, what that looks like. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm I'm so excited for that state. The place that Sequin started was actually to build a Chase Sapphire Reserve for women. And the key insight truly was, you know, rewards are not really serving where women are spending and fundamentally that's shifting and we're controlling, you know, estimated to control 75% of discretionary spend, you know, in the next few years. And so, you know, I was going to start there. We started building out the product and then the pandemic hit. And, you know, what I started to hear from our users was, hey, I don't think I actually understand how credit's working. And one of the things that we were seeing was women being disproportionately impacted by the pandemic, primarily because 
of the credit issues, you know, being small business owners, not getting equal access to PPP loans, all of it just came down to credit building. And so that's where we wanted to start ultimately was, okay, let's get her started on the right foot. Let's get her building credit. Let's do it in the way that feels comfortable, right? We're seeing these women preferring debit because they're just fewer gotchas. And so let's start there, figure out a way to make that build credit. And then once we have them actually in a place where, you know, they're comfortable with credit, they've built, built up their credit score, we're able to see their repayment behavior, then we can actually offer them, you know, full suite of credit products and, you know, ultimately be able to get them towards that Chase Sapphire Reserve for Women very premium experience, right? But what's happening today, especially with women disproportionately, is First of all, we're not getting into the system at equal rates in that we're you know, less likely to be pre-approved for offers. We get onto credit, higher interest rates, lower limits, worse experience. But even the graduation between debit to credit or from kind of lower tier credit products to higher tier credit products, there's a lot of churn and a lot of drop-off. Women kind of get lost in that or then become authorized users, which again is that credit building problem. And so really being able to create a suite that seamlessly graduates you from this introductory product onto more and more premium tiers of credit products is something that I believe everyone deserves, right? There's so much value in those coupled with, you know, you're evolving as a person and how you're spending your product should evolve with you. Beyond credit products or beyond kind of card products, there's so many inequities that we see in the way that women are interacting with finances. And so even beyond those, thinking through mortgages, right? Women are paying higher interest rates on mortgages, even though we're shown to be better to give mortgages to, we pay back more often. Even, you know, maternity leave, there's not really many maternity loans on the market. 529 plans for your kids and women are outliving our husbands. And so what happens after that, right? So the full idea is to be just a new type of bank and a new type of financial services for women that really centers around education, community rewards that are much more aligned with our life and our unique evolving life stages, which are very different from, you know, traditionally who's been in the system and finding Sequin to be that safe space and a, and a safe community to go through kind of life with is the big vision and the idea. I just want to uh, double click on something you said. I think you said that uh, Visa data shows 70% of women's spend is on non-credit building products like debit and cards in other people's names. I find that really surprising. Uh, how does that compare with the overall sort of split between debit versus credit in the Visa payment network or even for Chase? I'm trying to get a sense of how important are these credit products to these bigger players versus the debit products? And I suspect they're very important and that sort of like data point of 70% women spend being non-credit. And I, I think that makes that even more alarming. So kind of curious to hear how the banks think about it and how you think about sort of that, that gap there. Yeah, I mean, that stat is twice that of men. So you see, you know, the 35% for men on non-credit building and the 70% for women, you know, in terms of banks, business models, I mean, they have multiple different products, right? Debit, the primary driver is not going to be interchanged because they're all Durban regulated. Credit products really are the big kahuna of, of what you're making money on, right? And if you think about, you know, interchange, you think about interest, yeah. annual so, fees, et cetera. So credit is where the margins are higher. That's where the leverage is higher. 
So why did you go with a debit product? Was there a way to do like a charge card, like a credit building charge card? What's going on under the covers? Like, you know, like how did you navigate that debit versus credit? And I know there's like, you know, a spectrum of options. But what yeah. was that process like? And I, I, I think it's clear what your vision is, but that starting point is really interesting, I think. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we started off with a problem, right? You know, I didn't just say one day, oh, it'd be really cool to something, right? It was, I saw this clear gap in the market between men and women in matters of credit and did some deep research on it, right? We were in kind of research phase for about a year. It lasted longer because I wanted to understand what the pandemic was gonna mean for these women and where we needed to start. And I think pre-pandemic, it might've made a bit more sense to go straight to a rewards card and you know, have that be that chase off I reserve for women. You know, there's a lot of flurry around rewards products pre-pandemic, but afterwards, I think people are really feeling the impacts of not having equal access to credit. And so I think it's also a sign of the times of where do you want to start? And for me, the whole mission of this company is to get women credit. And so starting off with a product that feels safe and secure, builds their credit, and then nurtures them through the system is is just smart business as well. You're earning and gaining their trust, getting these women into the funnel and then being able to say, hey, we build your credit, stick with us. And we see generally banking trends, people are very loyal to their banks and especially their first cards, their first credit cards, they keep like for their whole lives. And we see women's loyalty to be even greater than that. So the idea is let's start at the very beginning, give them a great experience, build their credit, nurture them, and then be able to be that, that you know, card product bank of choice as time goes on. And once you decided on that direction, how did you go from idea to prototype, right? If you were building a software company, it'd probably be more straightforward photo sharing app, but you're building something in a regulated space. How did you go from idea to, you know, functioning prototype? Yeah. So when I started the company, I was a solo non-technical founder. And so, you know, I looked a lot, I looked for a really long time for the right technical co-founder, but I didn't want to compromise on that person. And in the meantime, I also didn't want to compromise on moving forward in the product. And so I actually did a manual hacky MVP, which was basically me getting a cohort of around 100 women and looking through their bank statements, their credit card statements, and I was giving them personalized recommendations. Each one, I would text them and tell them, hey, do this, do this, do this. Let's see what happens to your credit score. And what I ended up seeing was this credit utilization insight. That was their credit utilization is too high. It needs to be ideally around 5 to 8% always, not just once a month, right? Because you don't know when your bank's going to be reporting to the credit bureau. And what I saw was their credit scores went up 30 points in a week on average with this literally, and you can imagine, I mean, it's like me with papers everywhere, highlighting, being like, your utilization is too high. And so I ended up, you know, just having that insight that credit utilization is a really important and, and biasing factor, kind of created this very hacky page where you can calculate what your credit utilization is and then actually asked a friend to help me 
build in kind of a calculator that would text them and, and link to Plaid to automatically tell them what their credit utilization was at all times and help them pay it off if they wanted to. Just a very like generous friend who, you know, was in it for the mission. And I also said, you know, can you help me interview technical co-founders? Cause I'm non-technical and I want to find the right person. And so, you know, we had a lot of success with that credit utilization product. And then when I finally met my co-founder, Mark, he'd spent a decade at PayPal and engineering leadership, which like was awesome. And so he and I came together and we said, women are preferring debit. Credit utilization is a problem. Let's start there. It was also something that we understood how to build because he had his background in ACH products. Obviously, I understood credit. It's easier to stand up a debit product, turns out, but that's not necessarily why we did it. And then you know, really the innovation is actually having this debit card build credit, you know, which we're able to work out together during the course of Y Combinator. I love the hustle and grit. Like <laughs> many people in that position would A, compromise on finding a great co-founder, a technical founder, and B, not make progress because they felt like they couldn't do anything. I'd love to hear about the challenges. Like you, you have this product in market now. What are the challenges of running a financial services product? And how do you balance like scrappy, experiments and testing and development with, you know, operating a product that manages people's money? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the biggest challenge of starting a fintech, right? Is if you are, let's take your photo sharing app example. If you are starting that, you can throw together a hacky MVP. No one's going to get hurt, right? If it breaks. But the piece with financial services is this is people's money. It's their livelihood. Their security is on their line. Their identity, their socials, all of those things, you know, you have to collect and keep safe. And, you know, it's something that Mark and I don't take lightly. And so, of course, you no, know, you are balancing speed and wanting to be able to learn as well. And so currently we have a beta test. Essentially, we have a few hundred women who are on our product. We're making sure everything's everything works. You know, of course, baseline security, et cetera, we weren't going to launch it without that. But now, you know, we're just working through what exactly the customer experience should be while still making sure, you know, the table stakes pieces are all there. So you want to move fast, but you can't really break anything. And so I think that is a fine balance and it comes down to your philosophy. I think personally, for me, the piece that I don't compromise on is user security and, you know, their experience with the product is, you know, I never want there to be anything that's going to negatively impact them. And if that is the case, then we go slow to build that properly. I think uh, to your question about the biggest challenge, because our product doesn't fit neatly into any of the boxes, right? It's not just a debit card. It's not a credit card. Um, it's not just a line of credit, right? It's multiple products that are kind of fused into one, which is what is the beauty of our product. Products like this are very new to the market and we're one of the first. And so being able to navigate, what does that mean from a regulatory standpoint? Credit bureaus are still thinking about, you know, they have debit written into their their kind of allowable areas, but they're trying to figure out, you know, what's the impact of reporting debit products, et cetera. You know, net card networks are thinking about, you know, what, is, what does this mean for interchange, et cetera. So there's a lot of pieces to navigate that are very technically challenging. 
And there's so many players involved in making this work. So making sure that every single player finds this kosher and understands what's going on. I wrote the visa card issuing standards. And I remember that being a very cumbersome project when I was at Visa. But now I'm so grateful because as I'm reading through 100 pages of regulations or you know, making sure that our product is legal, I'm really grateful that I understand where the lines are and where the gray areas are. I think if someone were totally new to this, it would be very, very challenging. And, you know, we find it as an exciting challenge every day, but I think that's probably the hardest part is aligning all the partners around the innovation. You mentioned that you're planning to launch a, a refreshed and revamped version of the product. And I was wondering if you wouldn't mind expanding upon what that's going to include. Yeah, absolutely. So as I mentioned, we launched a few months ago you know, beta tests with a few hundred women with a long wait list behind it. And so since then, we've been listening to our users, what they've wanted. And so we early next year are going to be relaunching a version of our debit card that builds credit. And we're going to be launching a few rewards as well with this idea that, you know, we can pay back some of the pink tax, get some cash back on pink tax categories and also have some really neat partnerships with up and coming venture backed women founded brands that are really innovating in the space as well. So we're very excited about kind of the early next year launch. You know, as you look ahead to the next three, five, 10 years, what's really exciting? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think you know, one of the things I'm most excited about is innovation within FinTech, especially within credit that is outside of just rewards. I think there is this wave of fintech, especially with the verticalization of you know, some of these products, that there were these you know, very focused products for this demographic and for that demographic, and that really centered around rewards. And I think what's going to be happening next in this phase of you know, this new wave of credit is this idea that you can create hyper-personalized experiences that are actually growing with your consumer throughout their lifetime using, you know, data, using technology, and also thinking through, you know, being a lot more connected as well around these products. So I'm excited to see a new wave of products that are actually understanding the consumer proactively versus kind of this reactive way that we've been building. And I'm really excited for, you know, women to finally get the credit that we deserve. So on a personal note, that's what's very exciting for me too. So switching gears a little bit, we wanted to make sure to talk a little bit about your experience in business school, working with Steve Blank, I believe. So tell us a little bit about that. He's obviously written a lot about entrepreneurship and is a huge proponent of talking to users and starting with a problem. And a lot of that comes through in the way you've built your product and company. So we'd love to hear a little bit about your experience working with him. What were some things you learned or observed that have stuck with you? Yeah, yeah. So I did... Um... I took Steve Blank's Lean Launchpad course in business school. It's taught at Stanford and at Berkeley. I was at Berkeley. He developed the curriculum, but he taught just one of our classes, I believe, and came in. But yeah, I mean, to your point, I think the most important piece is putting the customer first beyond anything else. And, you know, it seems obvious and, you know, that was kind of more of an incubator and a little bit more in theory. And so, you know, it's logical to put your customer in the center, but as you start building other things start to come up and it's sometimes easy to lose sight. And so I think uh, one of the best parts about going through Lean Launchpad was just being 
insanely customer obsessed and understanding what is the problem. And then once you have a problem, you can come up with many different types of solutions, right? You know, you heard even through this journey, starting off with, okay, we're going to do a credit card with rewards for women. Okay. We're doing an app that's helping build your credit. Now we're actually doing a card product. that's kind of a hybrid of all of it. It's all in the service of the same problem that women are not feeling comfortable and confident and excited about their credit products. So it's something that, you know, I've taken with me is just making sure we're always talking to our users. And that's basically what we spend most of our time doing. But I'm really glad I had that experience because, you know, they were the other piece that the class really encouraged was not being afraid to pivot you know, week after week, obviously it's these very early stage kernels of ideas, but what did you hear from your customers this week and what did it lead you to do? And, you know, it's principles by, you know, how we're building our company today. That's great advice. So we have three questions that we ask every guest. The first is around superpowers. Everyone has a certain set of skills that feels like play to them, but it's like work for others. It's something they enjoy doing. They're eerily good at. And we found that Founders often over time recognize what their superpowers are and lean into them. So we'd love to hear from you. What are some superpowers that you've discovered about yourself that you like to lean on day to day? Yeah, I think my main superpower is my capacity for empathy. You know, I'm a first generation immigrant to the US and, you know, navigating a new culture is something that involves a lot of empathy. Even, you know, throughout my work experience, working in a male dominated field, you know, being able to be collaborative in that environment involves a lot of empathy. You know, now that I'm a founder, I'm still in the minority, right? And, and that involves a lot of empathy. And so I think uh, just being able to empathize with users as I'm building my product has been something that's been incredibly helpful. I've always loved to hear, you know, people's stories and where they came from. And, you know, I've cried with my users on the phone because it's the things that they tell me I, I feel. And so I think that's something that makes me a better leader. It makes me a better founder. I mean, it's something that, you know, I think is, is overall pretty good. So I think that's one. I think the second piece that I'm really grateful for is my ability to pattern match. I'm pretty good at taking seemingly different concepts and then putting them together. And so, especially as it relates to the product that we're building, right? It's, it really is a consumer D to C woman's product, but financial services. And so being able to draw from the best of both and putting those together has been really helpful. And I think has made our product, you know, really fun and different from other ones that, that are in the market because of that. The second question is, are there people over the course of your career that have giving you a break that you're particularly grateful for? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think starting off with my mentors when I was at Visa, you know, my team was heavily male dominated and I really feel I learned from the best. My managers took me under their wing and were probably the biggest supporters of Sequin. They're the first ones I told were my old bosses at Visa who are, you know, the head of credit and the head of uh, credit strategy. And they, you know, were really helpful and, and still to this day are, you know, people I tap on all the time. The second one was actually when I was working at IDEO during my MBA summer internship, I had been thinking a lot of now what is Sequin? And around that time, Time's Up was happening, Me Too was happening, and I just couldn't stop thinking about the fact that 
women needed better financial services that were more aligned towards our values and felt really inclusive. And I said all of this to a woman in a restroom as we're washing hands in IDEO. And she said, you know, I'm a part of the investment committee here. Do you want to pitch your idea to the investment committee? Do you want a bit of seed capital? And, you know, at that point, I'd taken Lean Launchpad. I was kind of open to the idea of entrepreneurship, but it wasn't something that I was actively kind of going for. And, and frankly, didn't really understand how to take the leap from idea to actually, you know, jumping in head first to being an entrepreneur. And so, you know, she really took a bet on me and I pitched, you know, what is now Sequin. I don't know if it even had a name at that point, but I pitched it to the investment committee. They said, you know, we love it. Here's a little bit of seed capital, go raise, you know, a pre-seed round of funding, however much you need. Berkeley was really helpful in just getting some connections. I was connected to the Schwab family, who are some of our earliest angel investors, um, which is incredible. So, you know, just having some believe in me. I remember her sitting me down and saying, you're an entrepreneur now. And I said, all right, I guess I am. So, you know, that belief I think has been something that's been unwavering since. And then I think third has just been, you know, the support of my network and my family and just, you know, saying, we really believe in this. This is really important. My mom is, you know, ultimately my inspiration around this, where she's been really afraid of the financial system. And I just wanted to open that up for other women like her. So I think, you know, that's who, who I think every day, along with like just a really strong ecosystem. That's fantastic. Thank you. And the last questions around books, are there any books that you have found to have outsized impact on the way you think about your career or your life? Yeah, I think um, two come to mind. I recently just read Grit by Angela Duckworth. I'm sure that's one that comes up frequently, but I think, you know, ultimately you just got to grind it out and just keep working hard. And I think her, her thesis of, you know, outworking and just being resilient and persistent is something that I've always lived my life by. And so it was great to see that codified. I think that's one. The second piece was actually Invisible Women. It's an incredible book that just talks about how most of our systems in this world have been designed to center men and what that means for women. And so I think as we build a, a product centered around women, what does that actually mean? What are the impacts? How has that shown up in other you know, industries? And, and you know, how do we make sure that finances is one that we're able to break out of? So that's another one that I rely pretty heavily on as I think about you know, just designing for women and you know, centering around women. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Brenda. We really enjoyed the conversation and it was great to hear about the sequence story so far and the vision and can't wait to see where it goes. Thanks so much for having me. I had such a good time. 